Hello and welcome to Controversies in Church History, the podcast that takes you into the um, most uh, eventful, controversial, but important events, ideas, and personalities in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Hello and welcome. My name is Derek Taylor. Thank you everyone for coming and listening to the podcast again. Remember, you can find Controversies in Church History. We're uh, uh, platform is on uh, Spotify now, Spotify for podcasters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, uh, as many other platforms as well. Um, please uh, go visit the YouTube channel and subscribe if you haven't already. Try to bolster our numbers there. Uh, also on the web, churchcontroversies.com. Uh, we'll do things like link to articles. I have some articles out. One right now in Crisis Magazine. And uh, also go like our Facebook page. And if you would like the podcast, want to help me out uh, with uh, doing the podcast, um, with advertising and stuff, you can become a Patreon, our Patreon account, um, Controversies in Church History. Uh, if you like a uh, small donation, I think it's 5 7 and $10 a month, you can help defray some of the costs uh, I incur for advertising and stuff like that. But in any case, uh, appreciate your prayers and telling other people about the podcast, getting the word out so I can spread the word and spread the the material out we have here uh, more widely. So welcome everybody and uh, happy Easter, happy octave of Easter to everyone. If you're listening, hope you had a wonderful Easter Twitterum and celebration with your families. Uh, update on the podcast: uh, we have new episodes coming. This is a new episode. We'll get to in a second, um, but. <clears throat> The uh, for those of you who are patrons, the next episode by another week or so, <clears throat> week to two weeks, uh, on the Latinization series will be coming. There'll be another standalone episode, uh, at some point. I can get around to it, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, on the um, the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program, and uh, also some other material coming. Uh, be I uh, mentioned before re recordings of older. Well, originally not podcast episode, but lectures, uh, which where the sound isn't great, so I'm going to re-record them. So it's new old stuff if you haven't heard before. I have over 80 episodes already on uh, on the archive, which are totally free, by the way. So the way this is working is I, I release new episodes to my patrons first, my two patrons, uh, and everybody else gets them later. I think it's said it was a month, so it's pretty close. So, But the second episode of the uh, Latinization series will drop for, for everyone as well pretty soon. So you'll be getting some new stuff. Uh, in the meantime, some other things I have from my blog. And that's what this episode is, by the way. This is a uh, this is a uh, an old blog post, a long one. And uh, it's another review. And it's a review of the um, of the TV TV uh, series Rome. It was on HBO about 15 years ago now. That went off the air more than 15 years ago. Wow, it's been a long time. And isn't exactly related um, to Catholic history, but it is a little bit, as I'll show you here. And um, just want to give you some extra content, talk about the show, and talk about history in general. And so some of this, by the way, if you haven't seen the show, it's a little bit, well, I'll get into it. Perhaps not, uh, if you were very traditional, uh, something you would watch. I understand that, but uh, I thought it would be good. Uh, it's a good way of you know describing for you what to look for. If you watch a TV show or a movie, uh, about uh, that has Christian themes in it, where they're kind of going wrong. You can kind of sense it sometimes, even if you don't know the exact uh, reasons for it. And so last time I did one on the Tudors, which was much more directly related. 
But uh, so now I present to you um, the reading of this this very long. Um, actually, it was more than one blog post on HBO's Rome, and the title of this is uh, technically HBO's Rome and the Rise of the Historical Soap Opera. So here we begin. Uh, the HBO slash BBC television series Rome was not the first series to trade on the more lurid aspects of history for entertainment purposes. The BBC, with series like Elizabeth R. and I. Claudius, has long been in the business of making history entertaining. But there does seem to have been a run on historically based series on cable channels in the last 10 years or so. As an aside, this this was published about five or six years ago, and there's been more since then. But I'm going to list a bunch of them here. Anyway, besides Rome, there was the previously viewed Tudors, the Borgias, a Viking show, which I think is over now, uh, rather unimaginatively called The Vikings, uh, a completely wretched attempt at a King Arthur retelling called Camelot, and it was wretched, uh, a series set in the Wars of the Roses called The White Queen, based on the novels of Philippa Gregory, and of course, Downton Abbey. You might even be able to plausibly insert Game of Thrones in this mix, fantasy though it is, as it is still inspired by a vision of medieval life. And that is just on the European slash Canadian side of things. In the U.S., there has been Deadwood, a Western, as well as Boardwalk Empire, a gangster show set in the 1920s. One might also count the multi-episode miniseries based on Ken Follett's novels, Pillars of the Earth, 2010, and World End, 2012, in this mix. In short, history has been selling quite well in the television world. I say that tongue-in-cheek, mind you. I have not seen most of these, but suffice to say their quality varies in terms of their presentation of the history involved. But I don't think I am remiss in saying that what initially set off this run or what of what are essentially historically-based soap operas was started by Rome. Its success in 2005-2007 seemed to have spawned the Tudors and their ilk. And for my money, Rome is not only the most historically accurate of these soap operas, it is also the most compelling television show of them all. And in this post and its sequel, uh, sequel, this was two posts, I will go over what made it so compelling to me, both historically and dramatically speaking. Because of the length of what I'm about to say, I will, uh, I will talk about those parts of, of Rome that didn't work as well as they might have had in the first part. In the second part, I will talk about what the series did do well. But both are kind of constructive as to what makes a successful historical drama both entertaining and, and this is the key word, authentic, historically authentic. First section, Roma Eterna. If you have never seen the show, Rome is set in the late Republican period, near the end of Julius Caesar's campaigns in Gaul, about the year 52 BC. The show follows the trials and tribulations of two soldiers, Lucius Verinus and Titus Pullo, who fight in Caesar's legions, and the backbone of the show is their friendship with all of its ups and downs throughout the major events of the last years of the Republic, ending with the ascension of Octavian as emperor, or princeps, to be more precise. The history of Rome has been a favorite subject of filmmakers since the inception of that art form. There have been many notable attempts to portray that most hallowed of ancient civilizations on the big screen. Among the best that come to mind are Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus and the film The Last Days of Rome. Rome also finds itself, finds itself something of a focus in Ben-Hur, uh, as do the, to my mind at least, less successful, to the less successful film Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, the most recent effort readers are more likely to be familiar with is Gladiator, from our old friend Ridley Scott, uh, which was a delightful film with delightful performances set in the most distorted version <laughs> of Roman history. Um, Scott is most consistent in this regard. And of course, before Hollywood was ever conceived, Shakespeare has given us several wonderful evocations of Roma Eterna, many of which have been turned into fine films, 
Julius Caesar, um, probably being the best of these, the 1950s version I'm referring to, starring James Mason, Sir John Gilgood, and Marlon Brando. This obsession with Rome is not surprising. The history of the Roman state and its peoples is dramatic, both in its rise to power and its fall. It makes for a rather ready-made story for artists and filmmakers to work with. No doubt, many more such films are sure to be made in the future, which is something that makes me rather glad, the spotty, spotty record of Hollywood in this regard notwithstanding. One can never get enough of Rome on film, in my humble estimation. Next section. Why Rome is Great, a preliminary word. I felt compelled to do this in my review of the Tudors, and I think I have to do it in this context as well. Let me be clear about what I am saying when I say Rome is the best historical depiction on film, feature, or series that I have ever seen. I am not saying the series was a replacement for history, or that it is equivalent to a history of the period it depicts. Every film or television show has to make a trade-off at some point between historical accuracy and dramatic structure. Some aspects of the historical record will inevitably be downplayed, left out, exaggerated, distorted, or twisted to suit the narrative that the filmmakers have chosen to pursue. A historian cannot do this, as it would violate the basic tenets of his profession. A filmmaker must do this, or else he will violate the basic tenets of his profession. Whereas in the one case, historical truth, no matter how boring or undramatic it may be, is the goal, in the other is a dramatic truth which is pursued, uh, i.e. that which brings catharsis to the audience. Uh, as the saying goes, there is only one rule in movie making, don't be boring. Once someone understands this and accepts the limitations of the art form, then they can enjoy historical films without having to writhe with indignation at every historical howler that comes up. If you can't do this, this probably means you have been to graduate school and are likely a history major. My condolences to you. What I am saying is that the makers of Rome balance these two goals, historical accuracy and dramatic engagement, better than anything I've ever seen on screen, be it a feature film or a series. And so I'll basically follow the same format as my review of the Tudor, examining first the bad, then the ugly, then the good in their turn. The bad. I'm pretty sure Rome, this is the, the title of the section, the bad. I'm pretty sure Rome invented a new category of pornography. I need to uh, insert a warning here. If you are, I'm not going to say it, describe anything. Well, too bad here in, in the podcast. If you are sensitive to this stuff. I understand as good Catholics you might be, you probably shouldn't watch the show at all <laughs> because it is really heavy on sex. Um, that is to say, I think they inv actually invented a new category between hard and softcore porn. I mean this quite literally. Uh, if you cannot handle repeated scenes of raunchy sex in virtually serious single every single episode, occasionally full nude shots, both male and female, you probably won't make it through Rome. Uh, I, very shortly after started watching it, I just skipped through the scenes. Uh, they became, they're really, uh, look, I, I was an atheist before I became a Catholic, so I'm, I considered myself very desensitized of this stuff, and I got tired of it pretty quickly. So let's put it that way. If, maybe you just can't do it. I understand it. But it is a magnificent series, and they do, as you'll see in a moment. They have reasons for this. Um... And I will defend. I'll defend the show's graphic depictions of sexuality for historical reasons. I do not think they had to go quite as far as they did to make the show work. But again, this is a cable TV show. So you knew they were going to do this in what is essentially a historical soap opera. And um, and that story they wanted to tell, the, the, um, um, the, the filmmakers, they wanted to tell the story about the decadence of Rome. And that its decadence is what led to the fall of the Republic. 
And so the show's creators rather deftly, I thought, linked the sort of sexual outrages committed by the show's major characters, and there are several, uh, to the political outrages they committed as well. Uh, in that sense, the whole arc of the show represented an almost traditional Roman morality tale about the decline of Roman virtues, despite the very, very lurid depiction of this stuff throughout the series. Um, from what I know of Roman history, they probably overdid it, since to my recollection, the worst sexual and moral excesses of the ruling classes occurred during the imperial period. Still, the kernel of truth that makes the extremity of the series defensible uh, is present, at least to a point anyway. Um... There's also another good reason for this that has to do with dramatic um, reasons, but I'll get to that in a minute. So that's one bad aspect of the show. Aside from these sexual extremities, there are plenty of exaggerations, historically speaking, um, and unlikely scenarios peppered throughout the series. Lucius Farinus and Titus Pullo, the two main characters, fall into every single major event of the late Republic, which is historically absurd, but it's wonderful TV. Um... The producers also made a point of playing up the influence of women, which it's true. Women always have some influence behind the scenes, even in a patriarchal society like Rome. I think they probably played it up a bit too much uh, to be accurate historically. Just to give an example, Atia, the mother of Octavian, is portrayed as basically having made him into the man who became emperor, which again, in some ways that's banal. Mothers have that sort of influence, but... They went way over the top. In the show's last episode, very last episode of the series, his sister Octavia says on the day of Octavia's, Octavian's triumph in Rome that this day was, quote, as much hers as his, unquote, which is historically preposterous. I understand the need of the show to do this. The show was, despite its quality, still a soap opera, but there was just a little bit too much girl power in the series for my taste. And then finally, uh, certain aspects of ancient Roman society tended to get elided for various reasons in the show. The most glaring of these is the way that family obligations were sometimes depicted. Uh, the show points out, rightly, that marriage was primarily a public and not a private personal bond in the ancient world, at least for the upper classes. But then you had the character of Mark Anthony, who was predicted as a, depicted as a sort of perpetual playboy who only gets married once uh, to Octavia for political reasons during the series, but is otherwise portrayed like a sort of 21st century, century bachelor living the high life. Uh, in fact, uh, Mark Antony actually married something like three times before he wed Octavia for political reasons. And in ancient Rome, he could not have avoided this. Being a member of the aristocracy meant, meant having to produce heirs. Uh, and so the sense of dividing of the dividing line between public and private for ancient peoples really differs from our own. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult to, to depict that and tell uh, a story to a modern audience. So these things happen. But it's the only major instance of this that I can think of in the series, and there may have been others. There are other minor offenses against historical accuracy, uh, which I won't go into detail about. But... Um, for the most part, it didn't detract from the overall quality of the series. It was generally, genuinely speaking, uh, historically authentic. The Ugly. Damn foreigners. Now, there was in the show Rome precious little of what I call on-the-nose history. And what I mean by on-the-nose history is dialogue written solely for the purpose of conveying historical information to the audience for context. We saw this with the Tudors. They did this a lot. Um, the only parts that are really, there's only a couple of times I can think of this in Rome 
Uh, in the second season, for example, Mark Antony accuses Octavian of, t- of attempting to aggrandize himself politically by having Julius Caesar pro- posthumously proclaimed a god, which he in fact did. And um, probably most people watching the show didn't know that. Early in the first episode of the first season, uh, a very young Octavian explains the growing lift between Julius Caesar and, uh, and, um, and Pompey uh, to Pulo and Varinus after a bloody fight. Um, again, that's probably explaining it. The audience, in the very last episode of the series, Marinus uh, has to explain to Cleopatra why Octavian is not going to keep his promises to her, something I'm pretty sure he did, she didn't need explained. But these are pretty much quite rare instances and didn't stick out that much. The writing was really excellent for the most part, uh, and um, but also because the modern audiences don't really need a lot of background to understand the consequences of civil war, even if it occurred in a vastly different society. So there's less need for context. Um, Perhaps the only other ugly element in the otherwise beautifully constructed series is something I noticed only after watching the -the behind-the-scenes DVDs, which I have DVDs of these, uh, that came with the first season box set, and listen to the commentary on some of the episode provided by the producers of the series. And one of the themes that they harped on and that comes to the fore really strongly in the series is the theme of Roman xenophobia. Uh, Romans didn't like foreigners. And uh, in several very memorable scenes, the xenophobia of plebeian Romans is portrayed with a gusto, which is interesting to say the least. To give you an example of this, uh, in the second season, after Julius Caesar has been assassinated, there's a group of gangs called Collegia who are sort of more or less running their own parts of the city. There's chaos because Caesar's died. And they're fighting with each other over territory. And so one of the main characters, Lucius Varinus, calls for a truce and a meeting of all the gangs. And so this is announced via one of the priests, the priest of the goddess Concord, who goes to the streets carrying an idol of, of the goddess Concord, announcing the halt to violence. And so just then, there are three gang members standing around, and they, they both question what's going on. Now, two of them are native Romans, and the third one's a foreigner with a really obvious accent. And their dialogue went something like this. Pardon my language, by the way. I'm just relaying what was in the series. Gang member number one. What the fuck's all this, then? Gang number two. Don't know. Foreigner. Let's ask the priest, then. He'll know. Gang number one. You can't talk to a priest of Concord. The foreigner. Why not? Gang number one, because you can't, you fucking savage, to gang number number two, foreigners. Gang number two nods his head knowingly while foreigner is gobsmacked and has no idea what's going on. Uh, I love that scene, by the way. If you can go find it, it's terrific because it depicts perfectly the native Romans contempt for foreigners who aren't aware of their customs, uh, even when they're not able to give them any rational explanation. So it's kind of awesome. But there's something more at work here. Um, the character in that, that little scene was a character named Mimeo, and throughout the entirety of the second season, he speaks with a real strong British Cockney accent. And most of the cast in the film is either English, Scottish, or Italian. But I noticed, again, watching the behind-the-scenes commentary, that some of the show's producers spoke what sounded with what sounded like Cockney, working-class English accents. And my point is, there seems to be clearly some transference going on here between working-class English mannerisms and ideals onto the plebeian class of Rome in the show. And I thought this was kind of a brilliant stroke because uh, the scenes like the one depicted above are really funny and the Romans, by the way, very much were xenophobic, but it, it seems to, you know, it brings it into sort of modern lingo for, for a modern audience. I will say, though, that 
it almost seemed to have too much enthusiasm about this, some of these scenes. So I think you could call it uh, an ugly part of the series, but it was really interesting that they did this. So those are probably the ugliest parts of the series. So that's the bad and the ugly. What about the good? Well, the good part one, historical Rome. Most films and series that have depicted ancient Rome have focused primarily on the great political actors of their respective ages. Julius Caesar, Pompey, Caesar Augustus, later emperors such as Nero, Tiberius, Claudius, or Marcus Aurelius. Such films almost never focus on the lower orders, partly because we don't have nearly as much evidence as to what they were like when compared with the senatorial and imperial classes. And this is precisely where Rome excelled, as it focused on the lower orders of Roman society as no series or film had before it and with magnificent results. The series, of course, focuses on the two soldiers, Titus Pulo and Lucius Farinus, um, who actually appear, by the way, in Caesar's uh, commentaries on the Gallic Wars, his uh, work his work of propaganda, um, um, trying to aggrandize himself, but he, they're there. Uh, he praised the two soldiers who come to blows with each other in that work. And from this, it's only one sentence in the, the commentaries of Caesar, the show's producers spun a story in which their lives intersect with those of Caesar, Mark Antony, Pompey, Cicero. And, uh, and the effect is to highlight the differences between the patrician and the plebeian orders in ancient Rome. And uh, most of the written evidence we have for what life is like in the Roman Republic is penned by the upper classes, and which is a problem for the study of virtually all ancient societies. But we do have archaeological records which can reveal many things about the life of ordinary people in Rome. And a lot of this comes out in the series, particularly the visual elements of the city. For example, the wooden tenements that many people live in, as well as their crowded and cramped nature is portrayed quite well in the series, especially in the second season, which uh, where much of the series takes place in Rome. The impact of the Civil War, the exigencies that it would impose on characters like Varinus and Pulo as soldiers is done with great care and, I think, great realism. Again, I think drawing on modern working cl uh, class ethos um, uh, was, a, was a brilliant stroke here in an artistic sense, but I think it gives you an idea of trying to relate to the travails of the lower classes in Rome for a modern audience. One gets a sense of both the pageantry, the color of ancient Rome, but also its squalor uh, in the series. Most films tend to portray ancient Rome as a sort of white marble and dust ghost town, influenced too much by romantic and classical art, I suppose. And this, the sets in Rome, which were filmed in the studios in modern Rome, convey the living vitality of the city, city um, excellently, in my opinion. But aside from the visuals, probably the most impressive thing about Rome is the way it treats of religion in ancient Rome. I have said before, the most important thing about a historical film, besides the need to have it look authentic, is that it not violate the beliefs of the people it depicts that it doesn't put words and ideas in the mouths of characters that would not have been there. In most treatments of ancient Rome, uh, I have found the religious act aspect to be treated in two, basically two ways, either with skepticism or, uh, in the case of films like I, Claudius and Gladiator, touched over with a veneer of modern, quote-unquote, spirituality, uh, goddess worship in the case of Robert Graves and I, Claudius, and in the case of Gladiator, um, a sort of folk religious belief in the afterlife by the agnostic Ridley Scott. Now, these latter two approaches are not incorrect. There are elements of skepticism uh, which were rife in ancient Rome among the upper classes, and a vague folk belief in the afterlife was present. 
but there's more to it than that. And no movie or series I've ever seen has actually tried to capture what religion amounted to for ancient Romans better than Rome. Uh, for example, early in the series, the character Atia, the mother of Octavius, Octavian, um, the future emperor, goes through a ritual associated with the goddess Sibylle, or Kibylle, I pronounce that, uh, in which a live bull is sacrificed and Atia bathes in its blood. It's gross. It might seem gross to a modern audience, and it's not entirely clear this was the way such a sacrifice was performed, but the series did an excellent job presenting this uh, to the audience as a raw thing about, you know, sacrifice was a basic component of, of Roman religion that way. Um, all while maintaining the narrative energy of the story and by kind of hypercharging these more, you know, exotic elements from the sources of the period. Now, part of the reason that Prusus did this, by the way, is because they wanted to play up these elements for the sake of dramatic effect. Um, but also because I think there was a self-conscious effort on the part of the series uh, creators to emphasize the difference between the morality of the classical world and that of Christianity. Um, if you, again, you look at the, the extra features in the box set of season one, the uh, historical consultant for the film makes this clear. He says this in several interviews. The actors also said uh, in some of their commentary that they wanted to play this up as well. And... Um, of course, the difference between Roman and Greek morality and that of Christianity can be overdone. Uh, many early Christian thinkers admired pagan moralists like Seneca and other philosophers. Uh, but on the whole, modern scholarship tends to emphasize those differences, above all regarding sexuality, which separate Christianity from the ancient world. And I think that one can say the overall picture the series presents, while over the top, is, is basically accurate in that essential idea. Uh, and so, as far as I can tell, I'm going to get him a non-expert, is representative of the series as a whole in terms of his accuracy. So, excellent on accuracy. The good part two of characters and performances. One of the better aspects of the show, as portrayed both as a matter of drama and history, is the way many of the historical figures are portrayed. One of my favorites was the portrayal of Cicero by David Bamber, who brought out all the aspects of Cicero that readers of his works are familiar with. His fussy self-regard, his vanity, his wit, and above all, his undying devotion to the Old Republic, which the social climber Cicero, the series makes clear he was not born in the senatorial class, spent so much of his life, uh, life defending. On the other hand, uh, Kieran Hines, uh, a veteran character actor, an Irish actor, portrayed Julius Caesar as the to-the-manner-born to senator who wishes to be a king in a society that abhors the very idea of kingship uh, and gets killed in the pursuit of it. Cold, domineering, protective of his patrician dignity, but capable of appealing to the masses and manipulating them, Hines Caesar is every bit the figure one would expect if you have read, say, Plutarch's biography of Julius Caesar. Despite some notable departures, for the most part, the characters feel both realistic in terms of the world the series depicts, but also historically authentic. No mean feat, to say the least. <clears throat> the best example of this, however, for my, my money, is the character of Mark Antony, as portrayed by James Purifoy, who was one of the few characters who made an appearance in every single episode of the show, and at least in my view, uh, was most emblematic of the violent energy, which seems to characterize both Rome as a TV show, but also Rome as an historical reality. One of the best aspects of the series, in my estimation, is the relationship between uh, Mark Antony and Lucius Varinus on the one hand, and then uh, Titus Pullo, his friend, and their, his friendship with Octavian on the other, because, of course, 
Octavian and Antony were rivals. And Mark Antony, according to Plutarch, was beloved by both the common people of Rome, but also by his soldiers, who appreciated his earthy, sometimes crude nature. Plutarch especially noted uh, Mark Antony's ability to motivate his men, and this quality is portrayed, I think, beautifully in a scene from the second season, in which Mark Antony, uh, Titus Pulo goes and, and seeks out Mark Antony. Uh, Antony's running the city now that Caesar's dead. And, uh, you know, Lucius Farinus, uh, not to give things away, is in a, you know, a sort of torpor of despair uh, for a variety of reasons. And so he asks uh, Antony to come, you know, talk to him, get him out of this stupor. Um, partly because he blames himself for the deaths of Caesar. You'll see in the series if you haven't seen it. Now, early in the first season, uh, Verenus had left the, the Roman legion only to beg Antony to be taken back, and he swore a personal oath of loyalty to Antony as the price of readmission. And Verenus, if you haven't seen the series, was the uptight conservative part of the duo formed with Pulo, and he took uh, these oaths deadly seriously, um, something Antony didn't, but um, he very slyly uses this oath to rouse him out of, out of his lethargy. You should go watch the scene. Hopefully you'll see what I mean. It's like a long scene. It's about 10 minutes, but it's excellent. Uh, excellent. And so I found the dynamic between Varinus and Antony and Pulu and Octavian to be utterly fascinating, given the power differences between them, given the way their relationship change, uh, changes over the course of the series. And I think it's one of the highlights of watching Rome, as are the performances by Kevin McKidd as Varinus, Purifoy as Mark Antony, um, I can't remember the gentleman's name who plays Titus Pulo, but he's great. Uh, I think it's Ray's something or other. Anyway, you get the idea. Um, you could perhaps um, criticize the portrayal of Octavian somewhat. <clears throat> Octavian was a bloodthirsty and ruthless person, um, which they do quite well in depicting, although Octavian had a better personal touch with the masses than the series gives him credit for. Uh, Octavian was not from an aristocratic family. Um, Suetonius, one of his biographers, records at the end of his life, uh, he made a remark that he made seem to think of his reign as something of a performance for the masses. And we have other evidence that he possessed more of a popular touch than the show maybe allows for. Perhaps they were doing this to heighten the contrast with Anthony. Perhaps, you know, maybe they were, you know, thought he got better at that over time when he became emperor. Who knows? But uh, for the most part, it doesn't alter the fact that I think most of the historical personalities match up pretty well with what can be gleaned from ancient writers like Plutarch and Cicero in the show. The Good Part 3, Parallel Lines and ex Escalations. The first season of Rome was the most exciting, addictive season of television I have ever watched. Ever. For comparison's sake, my favorite TV show of all time is Breaking Bad. While I think it is superb and a better show overall than Rome, nothing, and I mean nothing, I have ever seen uh, can match the excitement for me of the first season of Rome. I, uh, I began watching this show back in the early 2010s, I guess, after it had already gone off the air um, and bought the first season uh, as a box set. Once I started, I literally couldn't stop. Um, each episode is about 50 minutes long and I was watching nearly four episodes a night, <laughs> uh, so much that I could barely get any work done. I was still in graduate school when I was watching this. So, um, and part of the thrill of watching the series is the way Rome escalate the show Rome escalates the level of conflict from episode to episode, particularly in season one. Um, my complaints, um, my criticisms about the quasi pornographic nature of the show, 
are mitigated somewhat by the very marvelous use they made of all the sexual depravity they managed to put on screen. Um, and the reason is they were doing this for more reasons than titillation. Yes, they were doing that. It's an HBO show. That's what they were going to do. But each episode seemed to use that to up the stakes for each of the main characters in the show, episode by episode. For example, for political reasons, Atia, the mother of Octi Octavian, uh, breaks up Caesar from his lover, Servilia. Uh, his lo uh, Servilia is the mother of Brutus, the one who eventually assassinates him, right? Uh, as revenge for this, Servilia actually seduces um, Atia's daughter, Octavia. Uh, and so you have, and all this stuff is made up, by the way, this, this sort of sexual interplay. But it's meant to parallel the political um, life of the show and the, and the city. Uh, and so it personalizes the political conflicts in the story. And so as the first season progressed, there's a parallel, perfect parallel, between escalating acts of sexual depravity on the one hand and escalating acts of political violence on the other, which of course culminates with the assassination of Julius Caesar in the final episode. Uh, all this being built around, by the way, by another parallel set of stories, the personal stories of Titus Bulo and Varinus, whose lives inter intertwine with these larger, larger events, uh, larger political events, and comes to a crescendo in that last, that last episode of season one, which is just a virtuoso performance on a dramatic level. The second season is also splendid in this regard as well, uh, as it follows the, the arc of the two main historical figures who emerge after the assassination of Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Octavian, his nephew. Um, this was very good as well. Um, uh, Varinus, of course, is alive with Antony, Pulo of Octavian. Those two major plot lines are linked directly. Um, but for, for several reasons, the show didn't really get into any the, in the intensity of the first season. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, uh, I, uh, I won't belabor them too much here. You have some things going on there in terms of this, but the real reason why it sort of dips, it actually does. If you watch the second season, it kind of loses some steam about halfway through, picks up again at the end um, when you have uh, the story of, you know, you have the resolution of the story of Antony and Cleopatra, that sort of picks up again. And then you have the resolution of the story of Arenas and Pullo as well. But the reason why there's this dip in intensity in the show in the middle of the second season is that by middle of the second season, HBO had already decided to pull the plug on it, unfortunately, back in 2006, whenever they're still filming it. Um, the show apparently was really expensive to produce because I guess the, was the cost of the sets, I don't know. They were using CGI for some things. You can tell in the show, uh, fairly well done. But uh, it was apparently costing too much money to film. Uh, from what I gather, the actual original plan was to go up to the establishment of the Empire under Augustus. And it does, you get to the, the end of Anthony and Cleopatra, but you just get the very end where, you know, immediately um, Octavian becomes uh, Emperor. But he's not actually named, renamed Augustus at that point. It hasn't gotten to that point. It was supposed to go farther, apparently. And unfortunately, they ran out of money, so uh, which is too bad because it was amazing. Maybe it was maybe it was good that it ended that that uh, at that point because I don't know if you could have sustained the intensity of the show uh, in the first couple of seasons. Conclusion: A good man is hard to find. I'm not sure how well I've described the elements that made Rome so very excellent as a TV series, but these are the main ones I can recall from memory. And though some of them are peculiar to the story Rome wanted to tell, many of these elements 
demonstrate how filmmakers can tell an exciting, dramatic story, which is their main responsibility, while at the same time reaching a fair level of historical authenticity in their work. Again, the key word here is authenticity as opposed to accuracy. In general, unless it has to do with visual accuracy, storytellers, writers of fiction, filmmakers, should always choose authenticity over factual accuracy if they are forced to choose in order to, fill them, in order to fulfill the demands of their craft. Rome is a wonderful example of how filmmakers, if they take care to do so, can accomplish this. And finally, I just want to end with a bit of speculation about the themes of the series. I already mentioned the distinction that the theory makes between Christianity, the morality of Christianity, and paganism. And there were a few images that seemed to suggest this in the series. In the first season, at the very beginning, they start with uh, the two soldiers, Varinus and Pulo, on campaign in Gaul. But as they enter Rome in the second episode, we, ha we see Mark Antony uh, making love to a shepherdess uh, in front of her flock. I mention this because an image of a flock of sheep recurs at the end of season one, when Titus Pulo and his wife Irene go outside the city to the country, and the last shot we have of them, see of them, I think in the whole the first season, is them walking hand in hand past the flock of sheep. Whether there's anything to that, I can't be sure, but the image doesn't recur in the second season. I was wondering, though, however, if there wasn't something going on here about you know, city versus pastoral life, between being inside the city versus outside of it, um, where that shifts in the second season, because in the second season, the show takes place mostly in Rome, mostly in one area of Rome, the Aventine Hill, but I couldn't help thinking perhaps there was something going on there. And this maybe is related to another theme in the show, which does come out more clearly, which is the idea of a good man and who is a good man or not. The, the phrase occurs several times in dialogue throughout the series, and especially in the last episode. Um, if you don't know, I, they're, they're, you know, their fates are intertwined, but Varinus has been serving with Antony in Egypt, and he knows Cleopatra, and he's about to bug out. And uh, Cleopatra asks uh, Varinus if Titus Pullo is, quote-unquote, a good man. And Varinus replies by saying, define good. <laughs> and again, I think there may be a, a hint of, like, class there. Is he a good man in class terms? Um, and, uh, yeah, and so not to spoil things, by the way, for anyone who hasn't seen the show, but uh, Pullo and, and Cleopatra know each other as well. It's one of the fictional elements in the show. Anyway, at the end of the show, in discussing Varinus, because uh, by the end of the show, Titus Pulo comes back to Rome. He's been in Egypt um, with the siege of, of Mark Antony. He comes back, and uh, talk. He's talking with Mark with uh, excuse me with uh, Octavian, and they both agree that uh, that Varinus was quote unquote a good man. And I think what might be going on here is the not so subtle message in the series that the friendship between Varinus and Pulo is more important than their relationships with the great men of politics. That friendship is of more enduring value than the power games their social superiors are caught up in, and which all of them, save for Octavian, die from. This might also have something to do with the show's uh, working class ethos, as I mentioned above, and with regards to at least one, <coughs> excuse me, one thing that caught my attention in the first season, when Julius Caesar is is uh, about to have his triumph after his victory over the in the Gallic Wars. Um, he tells Mark Anthony he wants to do, do more than play at being a god in his triumph. Um, but something, his, his reaction, uh, you know, uh, his, this was in his reaction to Mark Antony pointing out how absurd the whole, he thought the whole uh, triumph was. Julius Caesar said this, quote, I am not playing. 
this is not a game, unquote. And the motif of men pretending to be gods comes out again in the second season, when, again, Mark Antony accuses Octavian of trying to portray himself as divine by having his uncle Julius posthumously declared a god, which, of course, Octavian did. And then there's the question of Caesarian, right? Uh, this is a political thing, because Caesarian's the love child uh, Julius Caesar and Cleopatra had while he was in Egypt. And um, in the series, the, the, the character of, of uh, Caesarian uh, believes himself to be divine because he, why? Well, he, first of all, he's Egyptian. Um, they tend to tell pharaohs they're divine, but also because he thinks Julius Caesar is his heir. This is part of the political back and forth between Mark Antony and Octavian. But whose actual parentage, Caesarians, is much revealed to be much humbler in the show. And I couldn't help thinking, and this is, you know, you're bringing this back to, okay, what does that have to do with Catholicism? I couldn't help thinking, because the show's creators were, were so keen on making a difference between the pre-Christian and the Christian worlds, that maybe they were tweaking the idea uh, at the end of this uh, of a divine human savior who comes to save mankind. Um, the title of the final episode of Rome was De Patre Vostro, which means about your father in Latin. And I just couldn't help thinking this was a cheeky, skeptical gloss on the birth of Christ, which happens not very, you know, 20, 30 years after um, Octavian taking power. So I, I don't agree with the skepticism at all, but if it was, this was a fitting end of the show, which, again, I disagree with that skepticism, but it gives you a sense of the dynamism and the verve that Rome um, brought to its viewers just uh, a sort of uh, manic rush of excitement shot into your veins and again if you are again this sort of thing gets to you as a Catholic you shouldn't well, don't let it be tempted by it but it's a good example of you know what historical film can do and how you can you know, when you go into because you know uh, if you're a devout Catholic what is uh, authentic and what is not um, uh, about Catholicism, you can take this as a template to try to understand films and how they, how they're doing things just for the purpose of narrative and when they're being authentic. And so, and but if you, if you can if you can you know deal with all the sort of uh, bad stuff in it, morally speaking, you should see the show because it's a treat. You will not be disappointed. Uh, it is a really well done TV show. And so that is all for this episode of uh, of uh, controversies in church history. I hope this wasn't too controversial for some of you. Uh, again, if you like the podcast, please like, subscribe, um, whatever you, wherever you follow, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Try to leave messages. You can send messages to me through my website, churchcontroversy.com. I'll try to get back to you. I want you know, would like to engage more with you. I'm going to try to set up a live stream at some point. I didn't mention that in the first part of this, so I'll, I'll repeat that to everyone as well. I want to do that sometime in the near future. Um, talk to everybody, see what they want to hear, what uh, what I can do, uh, what I can do uh, for my listeners, and um, yeah, go to Facebook and like the page, subscribe on YouTube, uh, and again, tell people about the podcast, uh, especially if they have deep pockets, <laughs> go to the Patreon page and, and support me. So, but uh, but uh, but no, thank everyone for listening. Hopefully, this was uh, informative for you, and I'll be back soon with some more content specifically directed. Uh, at uh, the church uh, and that is it enjoy the rest of the uh, octave of Easter uh, Christ is risen he is risen indeed and God bless you all